0: chapter thirty five of supplements to the third book from the world as will and idea volume three by arthur schopenhauer translated by r b haldane and j kemp this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine chapter thirty five on the aesthetics of architecture in accordance with the deduction given in the text of the pure aesthetics of architecture from the lowest grades of the objectification of the will or of nature the ideas of which it seeks to bring to distinct perception its one constant theme is support and burden and its fundamental law is that no burden shall be without sufficient support and no support without a suitable burden consequently that the relation of these two shall be exactly the fitting one the purest example of the carrying out of this theme is the column and entablature therefore the order or columnar arrangement has become as it were the thorough base of the whole of architecture in column and entablature the support and the burden are completely separated whereby the reciprocal action of the two and their relation to each other becomes apparent for certainly even every plain wall contains support and burden but here the two are still fused together all is here support and all is burden hence there is no aesthetic effect this first appears through the separation and takes place in proportion to its degree for between the row of columns and the plain wall there are many intermediate degrees even in the mere breaking up of the wall of a house by windows and doors one seeks at last to indicate that separation by flat projecting pilasters anti with capitals which are inserted under the mouldings nay in case of need are represented by mere painting in order to indicate in some way the entablature and an order real pillars and also consoles and supports of various kinds realise more that pure separation of spirit and burden which is striven after throughout by architecture in this respect next to the column with the entablature but as a special construction not imitating it stands the vault with the pillar the latter certainly is far from attaining to the aesthetic effect of the former because here the support and the burden are not purely separated but are fused passing over into each other in the vault itself every stone is at once burden and support and even the pillars, especially in groined vaulting, are at least apparently held in position by the pressure of opposite arches. And also just on account of this lateral pressure, not only vaults but even mere arches ought not to rest upon columns, but require the massive four-cornered pillars. In the row of columns alone is the separation complete. For here the entablature appears as pure burden, the column as pure support accordingly the relation of the colonnade to the plain wall may be compared to that which would exist between a scale ascending in regular intervals and a tone ascending little by little from the same depth to the same height without gradation which would produce a mere howl for in the one as in the other the material is the same and the important difference proceeds entirely from the pure separation moreover the support is not adapted to the burden when it is only sufficient to bear it but when it can do this so conveniently and amply that at the first glance we are quite at ease about it yet this superfluity of support must not exceed a certain degree for otherwise we will perceive support without burden which is opposed to the aesthetic end as a rule for determining that degree the ancients devised the line of equilibrium which is got by carrying out the diminution of the thickness of the column as it ascends till it runs out into an acute angle whereby the column becomes a cone now every cross-section will leave the lower part so strong that it is sufficient to support the upper part cut off commonly however one builds with twentyfold strength that is, one lays upon every support only one twentieth of the maximum it could bear a glaring example of burden without support is presented to the eye by the balconies at the corners of many houses built in the elegant style of the present day we do not see what supports them they seem to hang suspended and disturb the mind that in italy even the simplest and most unornamented buildings make an aesthetic impression while in germany this is not the case depends principally upon the fact that in italy the roofs are very flat a high roof is neither support nor burden for its two halves mutually support each other but the whole has no weight corresponding to its extension therefore it presents to the eye an extended mass which is entirely foreign to the aesthetic end serves merely a useful end consequently disturbs the former of which the theme is always only support and burden the form of the column has its sole ground in the fact that it affords the simplest and most suitable support in the twisted column inappropriateness appears as if with intentional perversity and therefore shamelessness hence good taste condemns it at the first glance the four-cornered pillar since the diagonal exceeds the sides has unequal dimensions of thickness which have no end as their motive but are occasioned by the accident of greater feasibleness and just on this account it pleases us so very much less than the column even the hexagonal or octagonal pillar is more pleasing because it approaches more nearly to the round column for the form of the latter alone is exclusively determined by the end it is however also so determined in all its other proportions primarily in the relation of its thickness to its height within the limits permitted by the difference of the three columnar orders therefore its diminution from the first third of its height upwards and also a slight increase of its thickness just at this place in Tassis vitre depends upon the fact that the pressure of the burden is greatest there it has hitherto been believed that this increase in thickness was peculiar to the ionic and corinthian columns alone but recent measurements have shown it also in the doric columns even at paestum thus everything in the column its thoroughly determined form the proportion of its height to its thickness of both to the intervals between the columns and that of the whole series to the entablature and the burden resting upon it is the exactly calculated result of the relation of the necessary support to the given burden as the latter is uniformly distributed so must also the support be therefore groups of columns are tasteless on the other hand in the best doric temples the corner column comes somewhat nearer to the next ones because the meeting of the entablatures at the corner increases the burden and in this the principle of architecture expresses itself distinctly that the structural relations that is, the relations between support and burden are the essential ones to which the relations of symmetry as subordinate must at once give way according to the weight of the whole burden generally will the doric or the two lighter orders of columns be chosen for the first not only by the greater thickness but also by the closer position of the columns which is essential to it is calculated for heavier burdens to which end also the almost crude simplicity of its capital is suited the capitals in general serve the end of showing visibly that the columns bear the entablature and are not stuck in like pins at the same time they increase by means of their abacus the bearing surface since then all the laws of columnar arrangement and consequently also the form and proportion of the column in all its parts and dimensions down to the smallest details follow from the thoroughly understood and consistently carried out conception of the amply adequate support of a given burden thus so far are determined a priori it comes out clearly how perverse is the thought so often repeated that the stems of trees or even which unfortunately even vitruvius for one expresses the human form has been the prototype of the column for if the form of the column were for architecture a purely accidental one taken from without it could never appeal to us so harmoniously and satisfactorily whenever we behold it in its proper symmetry nor on the other hand could every even slight disproportion of it be felt at once by the fine and cultivated sense as disagreeable and disturbing like a false note in music this is rather only possible because according to the given end and means all the rest is essentially determined a priori as in music according to the given melody and key the whole harmony is essentially so determined and like music architecture in general is also not an imitative art although both are often falsely taken to be so aesthetic satisfaction as was fully explained in the text always depends upon the apprehension of a platonic idea for architecture considered merely as a fine art the ideas of the lowest grades of nature such as gravity rigidity and cohesion are the peculiar theme but not as has hitherto been assumed merely regular form proportion and symmetry which as something purely geometrical properties of space are not ideas and therefore cannot be the theme of a fine art thus in architecture also they are of secondary origin and have a subordinate significance which i shall bring out immediately if it were the task of architecture as a fine art simply to exhibit these then the model would have the same effect as the finished work but this is distinctly not the case on the contrary the works of architecture in order to act aesthetically absolutely must have a considerable size nay they can never be too large but may easily be too small indeed ceteris paribus the aesthetic effect is in exact proportion to the size of the building because only great masses make the action of gravitation apparent and impressive in a high degree but this confirms my view that the tendency and antagonism of those fundamental forces of nature constitute the special aesthetical material of architecture which according to its nature requires large masses in order to become visible and indeed capable of being felt the forms in architecture as was shown above in the case of the column are primarily determined by the immediate structural end of each part but so far as this leaves anything undetermined the law of the most perfect clearness to perception thus also of the easiest comprehensibility comes in for architecture has its existence primarily in our spatial perception and accordingly appeals to our a priori faculty for this but these qualities always result from the greatest regularity of the forms and rationality of their relations therefore beautiful architecture selects only regular figures composed of straight lines or regular curves and also the bodies which result from these such as cubes parallelopipeda cylinders spheres pyramids and cones but as openings sometimes circles or ellipses yet as a rule quadrates and still oftener rectangles the latter of thoroughly rational and very easily comprehended relation of their sides not for instance as six to seven but as one to two or two to three finally also blind windows or niches of regular and comprehensible proportions for the same reason it will readily give to the buildings themselves and their large parts a rational and easily comprehended relation of height and breadth for example it will let the height of a façade be half the breadth and place the pillars so that every three or four of them with the intervals between them will measure a line which is equal to the height thus will form a quadrate the same principle of perceptibility and easy comprehension demands also that a building should be easily surveyed this introduces symmetry which is further necessary to mark out the work as a whole and to distinguish its essential from its accidental limitation for sometimes for example it is only under the guidance of symmetry that one knows whether one has before one three buildings standing beside each other or only one thus only by means of symmetry does a work of architecture at once announce itself as individual unity and as the development of a central thought now although as was cursorily shown above architecture has by no means to imitate the forms of nature such as the stems of trees or even the human figure yet it ought to work in the spirit of nature for it makes the law its own natura nihil agit frustra nihilque supervacaneum et quod commodissimum in omnibus suis operationibus sequitur and accordingly avoids everything which is even only apparently aimless and always attains the end in view in each case whether this is purely architectonic that is structural or an end connected with usefulness by the shortest and most natural path and thus openly exhibits the end through the work itself thus it attains a certain grace analogous to that which in living creatures consists in the ease and suitableness of every movement and position to its end accordingly we see in the good antique style of architecture every part whether pillar column arch entablature or door window stair or balcony attain its end in the directest and simplest manner at the same time displaying it openly and naively just as organised nature also does in its works the tasteless style of architecture on the contrary seeks in everything useless roundabout ways and delights in caprices thereby hits upon aimlessly broken and irregular entablatures grouped columns fragmentary cornices on door arches and gables meaningless volutes scrolls and such like it plays with the means of the art without understanding its aims as children play with the tools of grown-up people this was given above as the character of the bungler of this kind is every interruption of a straight line every alteration in the sweep of a curve without apparent end on the other hand it is also just that naive simplicity in the disclosure and attainment of the end corresponding to the spirit in which nature works in fashions that imparts such beauty and grace of form to antique pottery that it ever anew excites our wonder because it contrasts so advantageously in original taste with our modern pottery which bears the stamp of vulgarity whether it is made of porcelain or common potter's clay at the sight of the pottery and implements of the ancients we feel that if nature had wished to produce such things it would have done so in these forms since then we see that the beauty of architecture arises from the unconcealed exhibition of the ends and the attainment of them by the shortest and most natural path my theory here appears in direct contradiction with that of kant which places the nature of all beauty in an apparent design without an end the sole theme of architecture here set forth support and burden is so very simple that just on this account this art so far as it is a fine art but not so far as it serves useful ends is perfect and complete in essential matters since the best greek period at least is not susceptible of any important enrichment on the other hand the modern architect cannot noticeably depart from the rules and patterns of the ancients without already being on the path of deterioration therefore there remains nothing for him to do but to apply the art transmitted to him by the ancients and carry out the rules so far as is possible under the limitations which are inevitably laid down for him by wants climate age and country for in this art as in sculpture the effort after the ideal unites with the imitation of the ancients i scarcely need to remind the reader that in all these considerations i have had in view antique architecture alone and not the so-called gothic style which is of saracen origin and was introduced by the goths in spain to the rest of europe perhaps a certain beauty of its own kind is not altogether to be denied to this style but yet if it attempts to oppose itself to the former as its equal then this is a barbarous presumption which must not be allowed for a moment how beneficently after contemplating such gothic magnificence does the sight of a building correctly carried out in the antique style act upon our mind we feel at once that this alone is right and true if one could bring an ancient greek before our most celebrated gothic cathedrals what would he say to them Barbaroi our pleasure in gothic works certainly depends for the most part upon the association of ideas and historical reminiscences thus upon a feeling which is foreign to art all that i have said of the true aesthetic end of the spirit and the theme of architecture loses in the case of these works its validity for the freely lying entablature has vanished and with it the columns support and burden arranged and distributed in order to give visible form to the conflict between rigidity and gravity are here no longer the theme moreover that thorough pure rationality by virtue of which everything admits of strict account nay already presents it of its own accord to the thoughtful beholder and which belongs to the character of antique architecture can here no longer be found we soon become conscious that here instead of it a will guided by other conceptions has moved therefore much remains unexplained to us for only the antique style of architecture is conceived in a purely objective spirit the gothic style is more in the subjective spirit yet as we have recognised the peculiar aesthetic fundamental thought of antique architecture in the unfolding of the conflict between rigidity and gravity if we wish to discover in gothic architecture also an analogous fundamental thought it will be this that here the entire overcoming and conquest of gravity by rigidity is supposed to be exhibited for in accordance with this the horizontal line which is that of burden has entirely vanished and the action of gravity only appears indirectly disguised in arches and vaults while the vertical line which is that of support alone prevails and makes palpable to the senses the victorious action of rigidity in excessively high buttresses towers turrets and pinnacles without number which rise unencumbered on high while in antique architecture the tendency and pressure from above downwards is just as well represented and exhibited as that from below upwards here the latter decidedly predominates whence that analogy often observed with the crystal whose crystallization also takes place with the overcoming of gravity if now we attribute this spirit and fundamental thought to gothic architecture and would like thereby to set it up as the equally justified antithesis of antique architecture we must remember that the conflict between rigidity and gravity which the antique architecture so openly and naively expresses is an actual and true conflict founded in nature the entire overcoming of gravity by rigidity on the contrary remains a mere appearance a fiction accredited by illusion everyone will easily be able to see clearly how from the fundamental thought given here and the peculiarities of gothic architecture noticed above there arises that mysterious and hyperphysical character which is attributed to it it principally arises as was already mentioned from the fact that here the arbitrary has taken the place of the purely rational which makes itself known as the thorough adaptation of the means to the end the many things that are really aimless but yet are so carefully perfected raise the assumption of unknown unfathomed and secret ends that is, give the appearance of mystery on the other hand the brilliant side of gothic churches is the interior because here the effect of the groined vaulting Born by slender, crystalline, aspiring pillars, raised high aloft, and all burden having disappeared, promising eternal security, impresses the mind, while most of the faults which have been mentioned lie upon the outside. In antique buildings, the external side is the most advantageous, because there we see better the support and the burden. In the interior, on the other hand, the flat roof always retains something depressing and prosaic for the most part also in the temples of the ancients while the outworks were many and great the interior proper was small an appearance of sublimity is gained from the hemispherical vault of a cupola as in the pantheon of which therefore the italians also building in this style have made a most extensive use what determines this is that the ancients as southern peoples lived more in the open air than the northern nations who have produced the gothic style of architecture whoever then absolutely insists upon gothic architecture being accepted as an essential and authorised style may if he is also fond of analogies regard it as the negative pole of architecture or again as its minor key in the interest of good taste i must wish that great wealth will be devoted to that which is objectively that is actually good and right to what in itself is beautiful but not to that whose value depends merely upon the association of ideas. Now, when I see how this unbelieving age so diligently finishes the Gothic churches left incomplete by the believing middle ages, it looks to me as if it were desired to embalm a dead Christianity. End of chapter thirty five recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine.